Amen. Take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 as we begin reading in verse 18 together this morning. Genesis chapter 2 verse 18. I hate to admit this in the very beginning of the message, but I like instructions. I know some of you will think that I've got to surrender my man card now, but I like to have instructions. I like to read instructions. When you, um, when you buy something at the store and you got to put it together, I'm okay with looking at the instructions now. I have not always been there in my life. Thankfully, I have grown spiritually. Because at one point in my life, I would have just said, I can do this on my own. Any of you ever do that before? No, you're not with me today? Guys, come on, where are you? I thought to myself, I can just do it, and I can put it together. I don't need all those instructions. You know, I, I, I have what I need. I can just work it out. And, 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 and sometimes, sometimes, maybe because of sheer luck, I was able to get it together. It didn't work most of the time, but I did get it together. But I have learned through the years that if I would just submit, I would just show some humility, I'll just pull out those instructions, and I'll read those in the beginning, it helps me finish the project. And it helps the project do what it should do. You know, I've realized that through the years when it comes to my spiritual life as well. I mean, God has given us a manual. He has given us a book of instructions. He has shown us this way to do certain things, this way to relate to certain people. He's given us that. It's amazing how so many times we decide we'll do it on our own and then we'll consult the scripture or the instructions later. But what God has spoken to us and what he continues to say to us, I think, is that we can find instructions for life right here in this book. We can find the manual. We can find his intent, his design for all of our relationships, for all of our lifestyles. Well, especially as we think about the marriage relationship. Today, I want to share with you the blueprint, God's blueprint for marriage. And it is, as it is stated very early on, even in the creation account. This is what we find in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. It says, And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made or he fashioned into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become 
one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Here in the opening chapters of our scripture, you have the coming together of one man and one woman in a marriage relationship intended for a lifetime. I do believe as you look at this passage, you find a blueprint for marriage today. A blueprint, a pattern that God calls us to mimic in our marriage relationships. And it extends across all cultures. It extends across all societies. A pattern, a blueprint that God has intended for the marriage relationship. Now, as I've mentioned, the blueprint for marriage is rooted in the creation account. Genesis 1 and 2, obviously for us, we see the creation account itself. Genesis 1, basically what you have is this panoramic view of creation. God says, this is how I did this, this is how I spoke, and creation came into existence. In Genesis chapter 2, particularly in verse 7 and following, you have a more focused a more focused scene or a more focused shot of what is happening. Again, Genesis 1, you have the panoramic, all the different things and how it comes together. God focuses us just a moment in Genesis 2 on the particular story of human creation, male and female, how he brought it about. And he demonstrates to us this relationship and how in the very beginning this relationship was intended to be. Now, there is some significance in this. Because the blueprint for marriage was given in the creation account, it extends to all cultures and all societies. In other words, when you read this account, you must not be mistaken and think that it only applies to the Jewish people. There are some laws in the Old Testament that apply to only the Jewish people. Would you agree with me on that? Seems like you need to wake up this morning. So would you agree with me on that? There are some laws in the Old Testament that only extend to the Jewish people. Thank God. This will wake you up. Thank God we can eat bacon today. And the charismatic movement broke out here in the blended service. Hope it did there in the gathering as well this morning, but... There are some laws that are just simply specific to the Jewish people. We know that when we read the Old Testament. We understand that. But this marriage design here is not just intended for the people of Israel. It was not just included for the people that God would call His, the Israel itself. Here, this pattern, this blueprint is given in the creation account. In other words, it extends to all nations. It extends to all cultures. It affirms the natural law. Natural law itself dictates that a man and woman will share in a marriage relationship. Natural law dictates that. Here, creation affirms and Jesus himself affirmed this kind of blueprint. Now think of it just a moment. In the New Testament, we see affirmation of this blueprint and design. Yes, Paul mentions that. Other disciples will speak about it. But Jesus himself affirmed this type of marriage relationship, this blueprint that he's going to lay out here in Genesis. 
Where does he do that? Mark chapter 10, for example. Jesus is responding to religious leaders. They're asking him about marriage. They're asking him about the separations and divorce and other things. And this is what Jesus says. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 6, but from the beginning of the creation. So notice how he makes his argument. He says it is from the creation account itself. From creation, from the very beginning, he said. God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus affirmed this blueprint. He said it is from creation itself that you have seen this demonstrated that a man and a woman would come together in a marriage relationship and that they would become one flesh. Same language, same terminology that is used in the book of Genesis. Well, some of you, maybe some of the folks in our culture would say, now is that the way... God has always intended for it to be. I mean, the Old Testament, Reggie, in the Old Testament, there were some of those patriarchs in particular that had multiple wives. So was it always to be one man, one woman? Because it seems like people like Jacob, they had more than one wife, and God seemed to be okay with that. If you believe God was okay with that, you have missed the meaning of the Old Testament itself. If you believe that God was okay with polygamy, then you have somehow turned your attention away from the message of the patriarchs. You know, there are some things that we do that God does not endorse in our lives. He allows it to happen, but he does not endorse it. Some of us, some of the things we do. The Old Testament characters, don't forget they were human individuals. And there were some things that they did, may we just say it? It was wrong. Look at the patriarchal narratives. There was a good-looking young preacher that preached a sermon series on the patriarchs uh, a couple years ago. Go online, search Temple Baptist Church, Reggie Bridges, something. You might find it somewhere along the line. You would find out that those patriarchs were very human, just like us. They made mistakes. They messed up. They did not always feel, fulfill God's intention for their lives. I say to my friends who argue with me about this sometimes that God allowed those moments, but God never embraced those moments. Go back and read the Old Testament. You will never see where God embraced it, where God endorsed it. I would even say to you, that those who found themselves in such relationships, well, they found disaster and devastation in their families. I again point you to people like Jacob. I'm not sure Jacob ever had a moment of peace in his married life. I'm not sure exactly where that came from, but I just want to leave it alone just a moment. Read again the narrative. 
Read again the narrative. There was always a back and forth. There was always competition. There were, there were, you always had strained relationships. That was not ideal. I say to you, ask King Solomon. I got a text the other day from a guy in Zachary, and he said, um, Reggie, help me understand this again. I under, I, I've always heard that Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. But 700 wives... And 300 concubines? A thousand? I said, I responded to him the same way. Yes, he was a wise man, but that doesn't mean he was a perfect man, okay? Even Solomon was human, made mistakes. And you will see it was disastrous, not only for his family, but it was disastrous for the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, because of his allegiance, because of his devotion to these other wives and to their gods... The nation of Israel was ripped in two. So understand that when we come to the scripture, the God's word is always consistent. This is the blueprint for marriage as stated in creation itself, and it extends throughout the biblical witness. This blueprint that God has given. Wayne Grudem summed it up this way. Therefore, this understanding of marriage as the lifelong union between one man and one woman is intended by God to be understood as the correct definition of marriage for all people on the earth, for all cultures and societies, and for all periods of history until the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth. This is the blueprint. This is the ideal. For all, not just the Jewish people, but the Gentile people as well. That is the reason that God can bring judgment upon the Gentile nations who reject such a definition. That is the reason that God can bring judgment upon cities who have rejected the biblical definition of marriage and who have embraced sexual immorality. It is the reason that God, the king of all of this earth, was righteous in bringing judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah itself because this blueprint for marriage extended to all societies, to all cultures. And I want to say this clearly this morning. The highest court of the land can change the legal definition of marriage, but God's definition of marriage stands strong. There is only one blueprint that God himself has given. It was given in the creation account and it extends to all individuals today. And for us as a people, we need to recognize that. Abraham Lincoln said that the strength of the nation is found in the houses of its people. The strength of a nation is not found in a government institution. It's not found in other areas of our society. But rather the strength of the nation is found in the morality and the life that we live in our own personal homes. We should embrace the blueprint for marriage. So let's look again at the story just a moment. Having understood the significance of this blueprint, let's look just at the story. It says in verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. 
Now, this is contrasted with the other narratives of creation. Here, he's looking around. He said, it is not good. Now, what have we heard out of God's mouth almost all, all the time up until now? It is good. He, he created something. He looked at it, and he said, hey, that's good. Hey, that, that's exactly what I intended it to be. It, it's good. And now it says in verse 18 that God's looking around and he says, you know what? This is not good. It's not good for Adam to be alone. Now, he's not saying it's not good for Adam to be unmarried. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's not good for Adam to be alone. In other words, it was as though God created in humanity something that desired relationships. He had put something in our hearts. He had put something in our lives that desired to know other people, to relate to other people. All of us. Leslie will tell you, I can't stand being alone. I, I just... Now, there are times, yes, there are times I'll draw aside, I'll read, but not for an extended period of time. When I was in college, I wrote an essay on being alone. I recounted a story early in my life when I was in kindergarten class. Half-day kindergarten back then. It was great. Miss Black, my teacher, the love of my life, until I met Leslie. We were in morning class together. Now, I was like five years old, obviously, very young. And I remember going and doing my due diligence of class and taking a nap that day. And as I took a nap, I had, I had decided it was best to kind of crawl up under a table there. And I, I just crawled up under that table. It looked like it would give me protection. And I just, I went to sleep. I woke up. I was by myself. I was alone. I went to the door. I started beating on the door. I was like, hey, you know, I, I still remember. I was like, I'm by myself. They've left me here. Well, I could hear something outside. I could hear some people, something like this. And, and uh, finally, the door opened. Miss Black was there with my principal, Mr. McNutt. The class was all standing around. They thought something had gotten into the train. They had not even missed me. <laughs> I remember that so vividly. I thought that I had, when I'd written that essay, it had become a therapeutic thing for me and I'd gotten it out of my life. But obviously it's still there. As I share it with you this morning, there's something that still bothers me about that. We, we don't like to be alone. He says, he looked at Adam and he said, I don't want him to be alone. There's something in his heart and in his life that desires a relationship. And it says that Adam, he, he had all of creation, okay? He had all of creation. He was looking around creation. He was naming creation. And he comes back to this place and there is no comparable helper. There's no one that's like him that he can communicate with. There's no one like him that he can enjoy a relationship with. And God, again, has said, 
This is not good. So what does God do? Friends, God always looks at our lives and he sees our needs. And he provides exactly what our hearts so desperately need in life. He, he does that. So he put Adam to sleep, performed this surgery, took a rib from Adam. And then it says that he made, he formed, he fashioned. The Hebrew word there speaks about the idea of constructing or building. Now, some individuals try to speak into the significance of that rib being taken to the side and talk about equality. There are some good observations, perhaps, that we make from that. I think we must be very careful, though, of reading those things into the passage. Clearly what the passage is speaking about, or clearly what it's saying when God took the rib and he made woman, is that somehow these two shared together in, their, in the same substance, in the same origin, if you will, they were a part of one another, man and woman. There was a commonality that they had. And then Adam affirms that spirit of commonality. As God has taken the rim, he formed the woman. Adam wakes up. He looks. He breaks out into poetic verse. Guys, when you've seen that beautiful lady that you were going to date, perhaps you broke out into such poetic verse. Probably not, but maybe you did. The first poem of the scripture, and Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Poetic verse. Most of us would have just looked out and said, Whoa, man, and that would be the reason she was called woman. We're not quite that eloquent as Adam was. Most of us would have just been stunned and excited. There's a woman. There's a commonality, he says. He says, this is the bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. There's a commonality, the same substance. The words themselves, the Hebrew word for man, ish, the Hebrew word for woman, isha, which basically you can see the commonality in the words. Just like our English, man, woman, there's a commonality in the two. There's something we share in common. So he creates this special woman, this special helper. Next week, we're going to talk more about the roles of each gender and how God places those within the marriage context in particular. But I want you to see that not only is the blueprint for marriage rooted in the account of creation, but the blueprint for marriage is related to us in the language of the covenant or covenantal language. It says, verse 24, Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Those words, leave and to be joined. Sometimes we will talk about leaving and cleaving. Literally what it means to leave father and mother, cleave unto his wife. That those two words were used often to speak of a covenant between two individuals. Maybe God and the nation. Maybe just two individuals. 
that would make oaths to one another, vows to one another, a covenant. Entering into that idea of commitment and relationship. It was even used by Ruth as she looked at her mother-in-law Naomi. And the scripture says that she would cleave to Naomi or she would cling to her. She would bind herself to her. And she would ask Naomi not to urge her to leave. Same words. Covenantal language. Speaking of the relationship, the covenant that one was to enter into. It's to leave and cleave. Portion of the scripture. Marriage should be more than a contract. Marriage should be more than a legal document. Marriage should be a covenant. A commitment. A relationship. This idea of leave, obviously here, is the idea of initiating a new family unit. A new family unit. To leave father and mother. Now, certainly in the Hebrew culture, oftentimes a son would still stay with his dad's family. Patriarchal type of family. But there was supposed to be a distancing. There was supposed to be this idea of leaving. You starting your own family. It can be difficult to become fully emancipated from the family of origin. Especially when the family of origin is enmeshed. Some of us come from those enmeshed families, right? I remember one example of it. I was at Pine Grove Baptist pastoring. It was my first year there. Came up upon the holidays. We had a Christmas Eve service. Similar to what we have here at Temple. So it was coming along. Christmas Eve was getting much closer. I knew I'd get the question. I knew it was going to happen. I'd been avoiding the phone conversations with my mama for some time. But she finally asked me, when are you coming home for Christmas? When are you going to make it here for the Christmas Eve get-together, family get-together? I said, well, Mama, you know, we have a service here at the church. Pine Grove, we have a Christmas Eve service. So I'm going to have to be at that this year. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. I'm going to have to be at the Christmas Eve service. I'm not going to be able to, to come home this year. Reggie, you know, this is the only time our family gets together really all year. Yes, ma'am, I know that. I do. I always enjoyed it, Mama. I always love it. Always, I mean, if I could be there, Mama, it would be great. So you're not coming home. Don't you just love the way mamas can just bring that guilt into your heart and life? I mean, you, I mean, Holy Spirit has nothing on mamas. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Finally got through that phone call. I thought everything was okay. My phone rang. My Aunt Barbara. My mother's sister. My Aunt Barbara never had children. Basically, we were her children. So Aunt Barbara is a little more bad cop now calling. Hey, I heard you're not coming home Christmas Eve. That's right. Yes, ma'am. Really? I said, yes, ma'am. And why? Well, we have a church service, Christmas Eve service. We have to be here. You know, this is my job. Okay. And you know what she'd do then. Some of you know this. 
she whipped out Dr. Charles Stanley. Some of you may not know him, but he was a preacher for many years, still preaches at First Baptist in Atlanta. And you know what she said? She said, I was listening to Dr. Charles Stanley the other day, and he said that the family was instituted before the church. And that the family ought to come before the church and before your job and before everything else. And I took my theological lesson from her over the phone. Was very patient, got through it, finally got off the phone. I didn't go home that year, but it was a pretty rough time in my life. You know, there was a point she had here. There's a point that this is the first institution that is created by God. I hope you don't miss this in the scripture. Marriage and family, the first institution created by God. It wasn't a city. It wasn't a court. It was certainly not a national government nor a state government. It was the family that was instituted first. So she had a point at that conversation. But notice here. That it is the marriage relationship in particular that takes priority even over other family relationships. The marriage relationship. A man will leave his father and mother. Now, that does not mean he disrespects his mother or his father. I'm trying to walk a very fine line this morning with some of you. It doesn't mean he disrespects, certainly, the command, honor your father and mother. That, that's in play. But we need to understand that the blueprint for marriage, the blueprint for this relationship is that a husband and wife relationship, it, it trumps every other earthly relationship. Every other one. It's the priority. They would leave their family. They would start a new unit. So let me say this to you parents. Some of you in this place, I say this lovingly today, but I'm going to say it. You need to back off. You need to give your children, that one that just got married, that one that's been married for a few years, you need to give them some space. You need to recognize that the most important relationship is the marriage relationship. So those of you I just made mad, I hope I make you happy in this. Children, let me say this to you. You need to get out of your parents' back pockets. <laughs> See, some of your parents forgot what I said a moment ago now, right? I'm trying to be real practical with you this morning, give you some application. Listen, one of the reasons they think they have authority over your life is because you have involved them in such a way. You need to stand on your own. You need to know that you leave that family unit. You start a new family. You honor them, but you keep healthy boundaries in your life and in theirs. Husbands and wives... You ought to treat that relationship as the most important relationship you have. I love my kids. I love them deeply. But the parent-child relationship does not take precedence 
over the husband-wife relationship. If you will live each day with that husband-wife relationship as the priority, your kids will thank you one day. You'll be showing them the pattern that God has set forth in the Scripture. Husbands, the best thing you can do for your kids, love their mamas. Had a young man sit in my office some years ago. We were talking about some of the marriage issues. He said, I just don't love my wife. I said, really? He said, he said, I love my kids. I love my kids. I just don't love her. And I looked at him and I said, dude, I'm not really sure you love your kids. He looked at me, he kind of bristled a little bit. I said, man, I'm just going to tell you. If you really loved your kids, you would love their mama. Because what can you do best for your kids? Provide for them a secure environment where they know that there is love and they know that a husband and wife love one another. We're called to leave. We're called to cleave. The word there is for this holy glue, this cementing together, this joining together. There is something that holds you together. Cleaving. Oftentimes when you leave that family of origin, you cleave unto your wife, you'll see that you have to depend upon one another. The relationship is strengthened. One of the best things, this is where I'll make some of your parents mad again probably, but one of the best things that Leslie and I ever did was move about four and a half hours away. We had to learn to depend on each other some, especially in those early days of marriage. You cleave to one another. You recognize the commitment. You assess the high value of commitment in your life. That old movie that was produced years ago about the life of Thomas More. Thomas More made a statement that when a man takes an oath, it's like placing himself in his own hands. And when he opens, just like water, and when he opens his fingers... And releases that water. He need never try to gather it back up again. He need never try to find his identity again. Because there's a part of it. Part of him that is gone. When you break a commitment. There's a part of you that is gone. Never to be really recovered. Now I know it takes two individuals. I know that. I sit and talk to families all the time. It takes two individuals to cleave unto one another and to show commitment to one another. But for as for as you are concerned, your decision, your heart, you need to assess commitment that way. One flesh. One flesh. Coming together, the two becoming one. Certainly that would speak to the physical union. It would speak to the sexual union. It would speak to emotional, spiritual. The differences that we have, that we come together and become one in a sense of unity. Mark Twain said that marriage makes two, func- two fractional lives whole. You're able to come together. One flesh. That is the reason you have so many injunctions in the Scripture against adultery or sexual immorality, against anything that would interfere in that relationship. Over and over again, you see it. 
Why? Because nothing, nothing should divide the husband-wife relationship. There, the husband-wife relationship should demonstrate unity. This one flesh principle for a lifetime. And God's intention is for us to be committed and work through it. You want a stronger relationship? Work through it. Sometimes people will come to this church and just like they have other churches and they'll think, oh, those people who are here, they've got it all together. Their marriage is together, their family is together. I've heard people say this to me later. I, I've heard them say things like, Dr. Reggie, I, I, can't, I can't come up. Those folks, they have it all together. How little they know, right? We don't have it all together. Some of our marriages, they don't look exactly the way they should. Most of us, we, we have fallen short and we continue to fall short, even in the marriage relationship. But that's where we're thankful for God's grace and God's strength, God's refreshment, God's renewal, where he comes into our hearts and lives into our relationships and he says, I know where you've fallen short, but if you'll honor this commitment, I'll work through you and I'll show you greater strength. You'll know a renewal of the relationship. As we look through the blueprint, as the ideal. Today in this place, I hope and pray that we all would first just affirm it. Say, this is, we believe this. We believe this is what God has intended for one man and one woman to live in a covenant relationship for a lifetime. That's what we affirm. That we'd affirm it and then we would work toward that commitment in our own relationships. No doubt we live in a broken world. Jesus recognized that even in the New Testament. And some of us today, we've come in here and we've had broken relationships. Let me say even to you today, don't allow Satan to just bring all that guilt and, and keep you from doing what you need to do now. If you've worked through those things and you've experienced the forgiveness of Christ, you begin right now embracing this marriage philosophy for your life and you start afresh and you and know what God can do in your life. Because God has called us now at this moment to make a commitment to a biblical design, His blueprint, and for us to apply it to our lives. May we do it as his people. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the instruction manual. Lord, we come before you and we recognize that on our own, we make a mess of things. But God, thank you for showing us your way. Thank you for strength and courage that we need in our relationships, especially the marriage relationships that we have. Father, help us to honor our commitment. Help us to assess its high value for our lives and help us to live that commitment daily. 
God, thank you for taking broken pieces and, Lord, reforming those and bringing something new and beautiful even out of those moments. And God, today, help us honor you as we commit our lives to you fully. In Jesus' name, amen.